Welcome to the first part of Tolkien and creativity. It's such a huge subject that we split the podcast into two parts. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm the director of the centre and I'm also an author and uh, one of my frequent um, favourite guests to have with me on this podcast is Jacob Renneker. And so I'll let Jacob introduce himself this time. Thank you. Uh, hi, Julia, uh, and hi, everyone else. I'm Jacob Renneker. Uh, I am a scholar of uh, the fantastic, uh, including Tolkien uh, and mythology. Uh, I'm also a narrative uh, designer uh, for Robinsberger Games. Brilliant. I love the way, Jacob, that you combine the, both the academic interest with a very practical outworking of this, thinking about how does this translate into narrative games. It seems that fantasy does this brilliantly. It lends itself to, you know, leaving the world of fantasy and going into other, other areas. Right. We have decided today that to tackle the topic which interests both of us really fundamentally, and that is Tolkien and creativity. And so you get a sense of the the text that we're dealing with to discuss this particular subject. We're going to focus in on three with a gesture towards, obviously, the works everybody knows from Tolkien being The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion and The Hobbit. And the three which you may be less familiar with are a piece called Mythopoeia, uh, something called Leaf by Niggle, and uh, an essay called On Fairy Stories. So perhaps, Jacob, you might want to tell us what each of these pieces are and where do they fit in Tolkien's canon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, here's... So, and you... the. The way that you limb out was chronologically, which is fantastic. I think that works really well. So Mythopoeia uh, is the first of these three uh, pieces. It's a poem uh, written probably around 1931 or so. Uh, and this uh, is so and we'll, we'll get to the specifics of the texts individually. So just kind of broad strokes. This kind of seems to have grown out of a conversation that he had with uh, C.S. Lewis uh, and Hugo Dyson um, and debating the merits of myth. Uh, if if myth is viewed as something that is simply not true or not historical. Uh, this is uh, Tolkien's kind of refutation of that position held by Lewis. Uh, and so it's uh, it's not a terribly long poem, uh, but it is dense <laughs> with uh, allusions, meaning, uh, and uh, well worth considering. And you, you kind of see here the working out of his ideas of the value of creativity uh, in life in general and, and, yeah, and how I, meaning yeah go ahead yeah and, un, and unusually mythopoeia i don't really associate this with tolkien when i think of his poetry i think of them as stories story poems ballads very often mm -hmm. and, and comic verse mythopoeia is more like something you'd expect from alexander pope's essay on crit criticism or essay on man or something it it's stating an argument so it seems in quite an unusual poetic tradition for Tolkien. Am I wrong about that? Or um, is it the only no, one no, like I think this? It's the only one that I, 
I think it is like genuinely kind of self-reflective where it is most of them, like you said, he's kind of telling stories uh, about something else and, and what he's doing in his verse elsewhere is creating himself on, you know, kind of secondary worlds or embedding stories that exist within a secondary world. So this is meant to be read in the context of our world, our reality. So in that sense, I think it's, it certainly stands apart in that way. Um, from how he conceptualized the stories that he was creating and the poems that he was writing. Yeah. And if there's any super duper expert out there who actually can come up with another example for us, let us know, because we're not, uh, it's possible we may have missed something, but I think it's the only piece like this. Okay. So that's Mythopoeia. The next one is Leaf by Niggle. So tell us about this and how people can read it. Where is, where do they find it? Yeah, so this one is in, you can find it in a few different places. You can find it, uh, I believe you can find it in the Tolkien Reader. I know you can find it in Tree and Leaf, uh, which is yeah. kind of a collection of uh, essays, which is where you can find all the, these three works. There you are. <laughs> with Tolkien's you illustration. This, um, this is an old version of Tree and Leaf. You can get a more up-to-date version, but yeah, it's collected right. in that. Yeah, HarperCollins in the United States, I believe, is the publisher of that. Um, uh, and yeah, so that one, so you can find it there. Uh, it was uh, originally published in a, 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 a journal, uh, and it what was published, I think, 1945 is when it was actually published, but it was probably written in 1938-39, and situating this within Tolkien's works, uh, this is, he's been working on, uh, in this stretch of time, working on Lord of the Rings, but he's kind of let the manuscript sit. Well, it's been several years, it seems, that he's kind of let it just kind of <laughs> marinate uh, and he'd been quite frustrated with with the process uh and you know he had this there was this giant tree in his backyard uh, that he could see while he was laying in bed and his wife was very worried about the tree because with the wind and whatnot that she was afraid that it might damage the house and so they clip it and Tolkien thought it was a tragedy of uh, epic proportions that this beautiful tree was being you know uh, hideously disfigured uh and uh he, so thinking about this tree and it just like it kind of touched something in him and uh, he started kind of reflecting upon his own creative life um and so this is kind of i think among the most autobiographical you'll get of of tolkien's work uh, aside from the letters where he's you know explicitly talking about day-to-day you know, -day things that happen and, and instances. But this is really a, a moment where Tolkien is in, in the midst of his frustration of writing Lord of the Rings, reflecting on what it means to be uh, a, a, an author, an author of uh, of the fantastic, an author of something that other people might sneer at or think as being not worthy of engaging with uh, or reading or something that's silly or meant for children. Uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? And we'll get to some of the details there. But this appears to have this process of working through his own kind of creative anxieties, uh, maybe even some regrets. Uh, it, it seemed to have maybe catalyzed something in him that gave him what he needed to get back to the Lord of the Rings manuscript and complete it, which so then that was uh, published. And then later, this uh, essay or story, Leaf by Nigel, uh, is published after Lord of the Rings, but it was written before, you know, prior to the full publication. And that's kind of where it fit in that process. Yeah. And before people start writing in, um, I think it might have been a neighbor's tree. 
Um, was it he, Neighbor's Tree? Okay. I, possibly, because um, I was just rereading it today, and I think he 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 doesn't sound as though he's responsible for the lopping of this tree. Um, so we don't don't let's not blame the Tolkien family for uh, <laughs> tree massacre. Um, and then finally, um, we've got on fairy stories, which uh, is also widely available in various critical editions. Uh, helpfully, it's also available in the Tree and Leaf uh, paperbacks um, that we mentioned where you can find the Leaf by Niggle for the obvious reason that they're they're coming at the same topic from different directions. So tell us about uh, the on fairy stories, the origin of that particular piece. Yeah, so with uh, On Fairy Stories, so it came out of a, a lecture that uh, Tolkien was uh, asked to give uh, at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, and it, this was the uh, annual Andrew Lang lecture. So Andrew Lang, famously known for the different fairy books, right? So you have the, the, you know, the, the blue fairy book, uh, red, going through all the colors mm. uh, of the rainbow. And uh, he was a collector of myths uh, from the world itself. And uh, so that was kind of his legacy was collecting, um, discussing, comparing uh, different world myths, um, including fairy stories, which uh, Tolkien kind of argues is a kind of subcategory of myth, a different, a slightly different thing. Not not all myths are fairy tales. Um, and so, so he was asked to give this lecture, and uh, and he takes that lecture and then uh, revises it, uh, and it's becomes uh, yeah becomes a, an essay that's published, uh, mm. and it's it's this is longer, right? So this is a more kind of a, this is a much more academic. Uh, yeah. So you have three. So with these three, we kind of have three different modes of Tolkien's writing, right? So you have poetry, you have a prose story and then here you have kind of like an academic article um more yeah. or less. and they're all like you said i like how you said julia it's kind of they're all getting at the same thing but in three different modes of uh of imagination right kind yeah. of academic imagination uh kind of the narrative imagination and the poetic imagination um so it, it's fascinating and really to read you can get you can get a lot out of each one of these individually, but in reading them together, you really kind of get a three-dimensional view of Tolkien's ideas about what imagination does, humanity's kind of innate ability to imagine, and individual responsibility uh, and privilege of creating something through imagination. And they're also not very long. So if you're listening to this thinking... Right. Uh, it's not like you're embarking on a, a new Lord of the Rings. So we all would have loved uh, another no. Lord of the Rings, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> these you, these are things you can sit one afternoon and and read. Right. So where where I absolutely fell in love with Tolkien, both as really as a you know, aside from being a, the reader, coming later in life being the writer, was the way he helped me formulate my own ideas about what it meant to be creative. And let's start with the idea of a sub-creator. Now, let's we're not going to spend very much time thinking about this in the religious sense, but for Tolkien, it does line up with his um, faith position um, because he, he, well, he referenced it overtly. So for him, the, 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 the creator with the big C is God. And here he's quoting 
from Genesis with the creation narratives, um, particularly the one, the second version of is two creation narratives in Genesis, which people who read the Silmarillion will find very familiar. Um, and the second one, when it comes to, um, is it the second one or the first one? But it's, I create man in my own image is, yeah, is, the, is the phrase. Yeah, it's the first one. one. Okay. Um, yeah. And the point there is, well, you know, we're not all powerful gods. Um, so what does that mean? It means we are created to be creative there's a wonderful phrase in T.S. Eliot's Four, Quartet, Four Quartets, which is basically this idea, which is uh, we create by the law by which we are created. You know, it's sort of a circular, I've, I've misquoted that, but it's a beautiful line in the, the Four Quartets. And T.S. Eliot was adjacent to the Inkling group. Um, he was friends with Charles Williams in particular. So there is this idea washing around amongst literary people in the mid 20th century who were of a Christian mindset um, that one way of expressing being made in the image of God is to go ahead and be creative. The way Tolkien puts this is thinking of the author as a sub-creator. So you've got God, he creates us, we then create our own worlds in our, our literary output, our music, our art, painting a leaf uh, in the case of Nigel, and so on. But perhaps the very, very best place we can actually understand this is by looking at how Tolkien expresses it in the beginning of the Silmarillion in the music of the Valar. Now, Jacob, I know you love this particular part of the Silmarillion, and really? you pronounce the names more fluently than me. Would you like to just quickly <laughs> sketch out the creation stories in the Silmarillion and how they link to right. creativity? Yeah, so the uh, Ainulindale is yes. the uh, <laughs> creation story there at the very the, the the very beginning of the Silmarillion, and you have right your kind of all powerful god uh, essentially right uh Eru, uh Iluvatar, and uh this creator primary creator creates these you know the the valar uh and uh they he kind of calls them to participate in the creation of of the world uh and so to do that the metaphor that's used is music and so each of these individuals that were created by uh, Iluvatar uh, have, you know, their own minds, they have their own wills, uh, and they kind of freely participate in this, and they participate in different ways. They each bring kind of a different voice uh, to a song, and uh, they're seeing, so the, the, the creator, Iluvatar, kind of creates a theme. Uh, and, you know, say like a musical theme, uh, and he says, okay, now as a conduct, he kind of acts as a conductor and says, okay, now I'll play this theme. And they play, uh, and everyone is kind of going along and doing their own thing. Uh, well, not doing their own thing. They're doing it within the context of this, within the song. But then one of the voices ends up kind of drowning out the others, kind of trying to draw more attention to themselves. They want to kind of break out of that theme. They find it uh, restrictive, constraining in some way, and just want to be able to do that themselves out of the context of the Luvatar's uh, song, his theme. Um, so they stop, start again, 
try it again. Uh, and then it kind of works out a little more. Uh, and uh, but then what Iluvatar is doing uh, is he's he's waiting. He's giving these individuals a chance to still do their thing, bring their own voices, uh, see where it goes. Uh, but with again within the whole theme, and then again one voice causes too much commotion, and he brings it to an end. And in the third one, um, what Iluvatar does is he kind of leans into the the dissonance created by one of these voices and weaves it into the the rest of the music and the music itself becomes uh more beautiful for that interweaving of this uh you know what, what was seen as being you know chaotic uh perhaps wrong evil uh, that is woven into this uh, along with themes of sorrow uh they're all woven together and creates this kind of beautiful whole uh that then the Valar essentially uh that that was kind of the dress rehearsal for the actual physical creation of the world and then you have what you have in what follows in the Silmarillion is kind of the working out of the creation of uh of Arda of the world um but then you also have that as kind of a spelling out of history and how Mm -hmm. it's going to work out um in Middle Earth specifically yeah yeah that's that's the thumbnail it's a definite echo for those of you who've read your Milton. It's a definite echo of how it's set up in Paradise Lost with the sort of here's the whole story, but here's the working out of it structure. Um, I, I was thinking about this morning and I got very excited about the idea of um, Tolkien's idea of music for creation is very much like jazz. Maybe that will help people think about. Um, so when Iluvatar is saying here's the theme, it's like the person on the piano or whoever's in lead position saying here's the theme and then he delights oh they delight in it being played by the rest of the jazz band uh who are the valar and you can see where it goes wrong because it in a jazz band it's really not the ticket if somebody says i want to be the soloist all the time you know they they do the drum solo and never give way again to the the guy on um, the saxophone um so that's what's going on with melko he keeps coming out with the equivalent i think it's called trumpets he keeps trying to sort of destroy the band um and that's why it's wrong because he's he's breaking out of the he's spoiling the beauty uh, but as you say there's a, a way that the even cleverer uh, musician is able to even take those rogue elements and make them make them beautiful again and i think one of the areas where you see this is an area of free will isn't it so the idea is that though the god of this piece the iluvatar says here's the theme chaps chapesses off you go um he is allowing them to express it through their own interpretation so that's the free will I mean, it's always the ph- philosophical problem free will um but there is a difference between the working out of someone like uh, do you say aeoli um who creates the uh dwarves and melkor who creates the orcs do you want to sort of unpack what's wrong about yeah dwarves versus the orcs the thing <laughs> yeah 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 and i think and i have to refer our listeners back to their 
a much more sustained conversation on orcs uh yeah. when we talked we went more information about the creation of orcs the, than you probably ever yeah, yeah. knew we, we've done that you didn't want to know <laughs> right we've done that uh, and it's but it's fascinating but it does tie tie into this directly you're right um so whereas so just kind of referring back to what we talked about with with melkor um melkor is it, depending on which version of, of Tolkien's uh, creation of the orcs, it's either, uh, you know, kind of a, it, 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 no matter what it's done, it's done in mockery. It's their perversion and or mockery of uh, Iluvatar's creation of uh, Iluvatar's children, which were the elves and men um, sp specifically. And then I suppose you could fall under that then the uh hobbits uh for, for those kind of fall in there um although the what what, what the silmarillion is primarily concerned about is elves right it's written from the elvis per, elvish perspective and then men um you don't really have uh hobbits playing much of a role uh there they, they're not concerned about that um they're more concerned about uh humans so, uh so melkor is taking these you know what are referred to as the children of Iluvatar and creating Melkor wants his own children. And so that's taking either twisting, uh, perverting uh, men, elves, combination of the two, uh, to then serve him, Melkor, um, uh, and to do his own will, right, to further his, uh, his agenda. Whereas Aule, who's one of the Valar, the Valar that's Kind of, uh, he's he's a creator Valar uh, in the sense that he's working with with Earth. Um, he's like uh, a kind of Vulcan and, character, isn't he? From that, yeah, yeah, Hephaestus yeah, exactly, kind of yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so he, and so what what Ali does is Ali loves loves creating so much, uh, and he knows that there's this idea in this song, right? There's the the which happened before the working out of the physical creation. In that song, he remembers that there are these you know children of Iluvatar, and he's inspired by that this idea that there are these little beings that are going to be walking around and populating this world. He's so inspired that he wants to create some of his own, and so he fashions them. And what he thinks is probably the closest to that, he doesn't have a clear. Uh, picture of what these children of Iluvatar are going to look like. Um, so he ends up making things that are a little stockier, a little more stout. <laughs> the proportions are off compared to elves and men. Um, so this is his attempt, you know, like when you have a, you know, a, a preschooler, uh, a young, you know, who's, who's trying to draw uh, what they think people look like and the proportions are kind of off because they oh, I think this is really unfair to dwarves here because dwarves are perfectly adapted to being in caves I think I reckon he was onto a good oh thing. no and I think that's <laughs> right right so in their, in their own world yeah so it's just if, if, if my my child's stick figures would come to life completely at home in the world of that drawing right and they would mm. love it and I'm not saying that that, that that dwarves are lesser or worse. They are a little bit slower. And as we're reminded, they're better at uh, sprinting short distances than in long runs. Um, and so uh, so what Ali does, so he creates these things, uh, these 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 creatures, um, and uh, they kind of come to life, but they're not, we don't know if we can quite call it life. They're just kind of almost automatons. They're kind of like moving around. And he's actually interrupted by, uh, Iluvatar. So this is one of the few times where you have Iluvatar actually entering into the story. Um, and he kind of scolds Aule, says like, you know, why are you, you making these? He's like, oh, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be doing that. I was just so excited about that. <laughs> Forgive me. And he's, and so he says like, you can, I will, I will, I will, I will crush these myself. I will destroy them right now. Sorry. I didn't know that this was a problem. Uh, but Iluvatar stays his hand and says, no, don't, 
don't destroy them. These are valuable because they were your creation. You were creating them not to do your own will, but because you wanted to further the beauty in the world. And so don't touch them. I'm going to do something with them. And so he kind of puts them, puts them to sleep, lays them down. And then uh, Iluvatar essentially breathes real life into them. So they have, you know, free will and, and they're then kind of functioning within this world. And he keeps them instead of, you know, kind of changing them to make, you know, to meet the proportions of elves and humans, uh, he keeps them in the same form that Aule formed them, which was stockier, stouter. Um, so he kind of, he, he, he essentially blesses uh, Aule's work where it oh, was, okay, it I see. I missed perfect, that step. Yeah, right? I missed that step. So he wasn't. So he. So he isn't saying that. Like, okay, you like now. I'm going to pat, pat him on the head and then like changes the drawing and says, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like. He says, like, no, what you did is great as it is, and it's going to play a different part, but it's going to be a part that weaves into the to the whole and strengthens mm-hmm. and adds things that wouldn't be there if they were the same size proportions and had the same interests as elves and men. So this is one of these examples of Iluvatar taking something that's kind of unexpected, that's outside of the plan. So this is this is that that conductor or the person in the jazz band who finds something that's kind of wobbly or wonky and then kind of tries bringing, you know, reaching out and bringing it in rather than just kind of segregating it or separating it from uh, the song it brings it in and incorporates it too. So this is really yeah. So that that uh, that the Owlay's creation of the dwarves is a, a really good idea of an illustration of what it means to be a creator and the sort of attitude that Tolkien believes that creators should have. So Melkor is creating orcs, but he's creating them for the purpose of subjugation for his to further his own will whereas Aule was doing it to kind of beautify uh creation as a whole and because that was the attitude or posture of that creator then Iluvatar is able to work with that and bring that in and kind of elevate the work as a whole okay so um this is coming out of um Tolkien's sort of the- theology really um but also there's a parallel here between the long-running debates within literary criticism of the role of the author as regarding their texts. And um, I want to here to acknowledge, and we'll put an, a, a link in the show notes, to an excellent article by Benjamin Saxton, which looks at this, um, lines it up with Roland Barthes and all that kind of stuff. Um And so the context in which Tolkien is writing, he's probably aware and a bit sniffy about all this (laughs) literary criticism that's going on and sweeping through the the literature schools um, in Oxford and Cambridge and elsewhere, where there is this debate about meaning and does anything have any meaning and structuralism and post-structuralism, all that stuff. And he is coming in with, I suppose, in a sense, uh, going back to basics, what he thinks story does. Uh, and he's fighting this rearguard action against these movements, which are moving towards a sense of there being no meaning. Um, the author is dead feel, um, which is very well explored in that article. So if you are studying literature or just interested in it, do read this article. Um, so let's turn by the first of these rearguard actions in Mythopoeia, um, it's beautiful. I don't know if you've got any any of it to quote to us, um, Jacob. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I absolutely do. Um, 
Here's right. So again, this is this is interesting, and I, I, I this holds a, a particularly special place uh, in my heart because I was able to sneak this into my qualifying exams um, for my my doc my doctoral qualifying exams. Uh, I, I was dealing with um, uh, mythology, uh, kind of comparative uh, myth and and religious uh, ideas and movements, and uh, so. In talking about myth, I kind of brought this uh, this particular poem, poem in, uh, and and like so, what, what this is doing again? Like it's it's kind of a uh, in in praise of myth. So for those people who might say that like myth is so the, the, the kind of preface to this poem is a line that uh, comes from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis apparently said in this kind of long night uh, walk, nighttime walk. Uh, that that Lewis had with Tolkien and Dyson, and there, you know, Lewis at this point is, you know, uh, on his journey from, you know, was was kind of Christian theist to then kind of agnostic atheist, and then he kind of was shifting kind of back, but like needs some sort of like resonance or convincing both like intellectually, but as well as you know, kind of deeper, kind of in the heart um, uh, that. You know what's the value of uh of of these these different stories? So he's Lewis was very touched by uh the you know Norse some of these Norse stories. Um, uh, the Ring Cycle was something was one that like particularly touched him. You know Ragnarok and these uh, different ideas. And uh, but he said like, but they're just they're lies. So this is the line the line that starts Mythopoeia is it's dedicated to the one. Quote, who said that myths were lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. So those mm. were apparently Lewis's words that they're breathed through silver. So these myths, they sound great and they have these great ideas and you might feel something, but essentially they're lies because he, you know, Lewis is arguing that there wasn't you know, Fafnir, there wasn't Thor and Odin and um, Hela and all these. Like he's he's saying these these aren't actual creatures. Like, so they're, they're they're lies. They're worthless. They they sound great, but there's no worth to them. Um, and so th so Tolkien writes this. Um, it's, it's from Philomythus to Mesomythus, which is from the lover of myths to the hater of myths. Essentially, <laughs> is these characters that he's creating. A very um, academic characterizing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. Yes, uh, some of the best jokes are right. Um, uh, so so one one of the things that he's that he says here, you know, he's combating these ideas that um, you know trees are just trees. Um, that the, the they're there that it's, it's a combination of you know cells uh structures uh that they you know creates um you know it, it it sustains itself through soil through a particular chemical composition uh takes certain elements from uh that are around it uh, from water uh that takes sunlight and transforms that you know chlorophyll etc cetera, etc cetera. and so it's kind of he's fighting against labeling things like you can dissect things and label them and that is the thing. Um, but in this poem, Tolkien says that the naming of things is part of the magic. This is something we'll, we'll circle back to on fairy stories is the power of words and language in creating and creating a world and an experience rather than just kind of a taxonomy of or an anatomy of something. Um, and so, so this is kind of what he's fighting is the kind of a cold view of reality that you can just label things and things in that sense become tools for furthering human 
ambitions and you know human greed um human self-referential ends rather than putting in the context of creation as a whole um and so back to what you, you were saying earlier about um about humanity as sub-creators right tolkien sees the world as a creation that somebody else created um then for in tolkien's mind this is a creation that that god made and so while humans can't do the sort of thing that god does which is create an entire physical planet populated by x y and z um humanity can take of the raw materials and elements and shape them into something unique. And so one of the phrases that I, that I love here is, uh, he says, man, sub-creator, the reflected light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move mind to mind. So this idea that each person is essentially kind of a prism, right? So everybody get, has the same kind of sorts of input, you know, creative input that's coming in, but each person is taking from the world around them and putting them into an endlessly, uh, you know, kind of an infinite number of different possibilities, a certain combination of those possibilities that's only available from, say, my perspective and from your perspective. And each person has a particular sensitivity to the world around them. And so a kind of creation, a literary creation is essentially filtering of something larger than yourself through your experience, your eyes uh, and sensitivities into something that's unique and new and that never created, you know, never existed before and could never exist throughout all eternity if it weren't for you, the creator. Uh, and yeah, that I mean, that's, that's really can then move and do. Yeah, that's really true to my experience as uh, an author. So I often do talks in schools, and pretty much every time I get asked, um, you know, why be an author? You know, why do you write? Kind of thing. And that is one of the answers. The answer is, um, I could, I've done other jobs in the workplace where when I leave, somebody takes my job on and they, they, they do it fine, you know, the, the places if I've never been. Um, but nobody else can write the book I've written, the world I've created in that book. It's a unique thing. Uh, it's this, I'm sure it's exactly the same for someone who composes a piece of music or paints a picture, creates a garden. I mean, it doesn't have to be just, you know, art forms you buy in a shop. Um, and that's very profound. So that splinter idea, I love that quote as well. Um, and I was thinking about that a little bit more and how it chimes with what Tolkien goes on to write or is writing probably at the same time, particularly in the Silmarillion part of the, the bit about the Silmarils, the, the, the jewels that are made by Fiano, because that Elvin Smith, um, he's like the original craftsman of the elves who's living in the land of the Valar, uh, the undying lands. He creates the Silmarils, capturing the light, a splinter of the light from, I think it's from the trees at this point, isn't it? Because um, yeah. there's a number of light sources in, <laughs> in Middle-earth. Anyway, so he's, he's creating the, these jewels and they become amazingly beautiful um, with the light inside. And then when Melkor and the Ungoliant, is it Ungoliant, the spider, kill the trees, um, mm -hmm. that light leaves the earth and Melkor runs off with the, the jewels. And this is really 
the major moment of disaster in uh, the first age. And what then happens is an interesting discussion. So Yavanna, who's one of the um, one of the Valar, the one who sort of creates the, the nature goddess, I suppose is the best way of thinking about her, uh, who created the trees. Um, she says, well, if we could have a bit of that light from the Silmarils, then maybe we can illuminate this again. We can recreate this. But Fiano's decided it's his by now. No one's touching, no one's touching Silmarils. They're mine, they're my family's, and this begins that almost Greek, well, it is a kind of Greek tragedy of brothers against brothers and all this kind of thing. And um, he's forgotten that he owes his creativity to something that isn't him. He has grown to be this monster ego. And that's what's wrong with him, is he no longer gives up his creation in thanks in the way that Aeuli with the dwarves did. Here's, here's what I've done. Oh, okay, you know, mm. here it is for you. Um, he's, he's, he's going more into the Melkor idea, which is it's mine. It's my precious familiar so that splinter idea i think is the difference between healthy and unhealthy creativity that mm-hmm. i don't think talking how much time he was fairly I suppose he you could say he was obsessive about middle earth but he was never um he, he was happy to share it with other people and talk about it with other people he didn't sort of clutch it so close he shared it, he read it had it published mm-hmm. um so he didn't fall off the the wagon of healthy creativity, but he sees that potential, I think, in that that splinter idea. So that's another yeah. area where we think about a creative mind has to be aware that it's only part of a process. Um, and that, I don't think that's really reflects. So going on to the Lord of the Rings, which some of you may be more familiar with, Lord of the Rings rather than the Silmarillion. You get that in the ring. The ring is a dark version of this. So um, it's been created and part a splinter or power from Sauron's been put in it. And then that is a kind of poisonous creativity because that then goes on to spread like a cancer through everybody it touches. Um, So you've got... These themes, it's going back to the music, it's a different version of the theme being played in a darker key. Uh, And that's what I love about how he thinks through this, because he keeps playing a different version of his theme. And you always think, oh, yeah, that that too is true about creativity. So have we got anything more to say about Mythopoeia other than it was a fun thing to go away and read because it's full of some wonderful images um, and, again, not too long a read? um yeah so it's, we... you know, it is great one yeah i just want one last one last phrase that i love and i think it's encouraging for creators of all, all sorts uh he says here that essentially so like creation uh is done by people who have hearts essentially right that they care about the world around them um no matter who you are and he, i love the word that he uses here that gives me hope right so as i, as I feel like i'm not you know not measuring up to my own ideas of who I should be or who I want to be as an author, right? Uh, as a poet, as, as fill in the blank. He, he says here, blessed are the timid hearts, uh, the evil hate that quail in its shadow and yet shut gate that seek no parlay and in guarded room, though small and bare 
Upon a clumsy loom, we've tissues gilded by the far off day, hope believed in under shadows sway. So this like idea of like, especially like the, the clumsy loom, right? These people that are just like, they're, they're reacting, they want to bring, they recognize that the world around them can be bleak and dark. Um, but he's saying a like, blessed are those people that even though they're scared and, uh, you know, trembling and they don't have the best materials yet, they're trying to do something to bring something good into the world. No, no matter what it is, no matter how clumsy your loom or fingers, the fact that you are trying to do something, make it in whatever mode that's going to be, like you're mentioning gardening, by painting your house, uh, whatever it is, you're, you're beautifying, you're doing something good to share, to enrich the world around you. That's what's important in the creative process. And that's worthy in and of itself. Yeah. And so I just love that idea. It's inspiring. For me. Yeah. So it means that everybody out there who's having a go at their poetry or their novel writing or whatever, that's that's good. That's valued. That's the, fact, the fact that you're doing that, the fact you are a poet, you are a writer. If you're yeah. writing, if you're in the act of writing, you're a writer. Yeah. If you're in the act of painting, whatever it is, you're a painter. It's that it's that desire to do it and do it again, not for just yourself, for those greedy, self-serving purposes. It's to like to enrich those around you, to enrich yourself, but also to bring something into the world that didn't exist before. Doesn't mean you can't get better at it, just as you do painting right. classes. You can come <laughs> yeah. on one of our right. writing writing courses that we do here. Uh, the little effort there, um, but it's still worthwhile even without any sort of extra um, sort of formal education about it. Thank you for listening to part one. Rejoin us next week to listen to the second part of our discussion. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Mm-hmm.